Letitia. Jen. So we had actually recorded an intro for this week's episode on Wednesday of last week. That's normally when we do it. Yep. And then I messaged Tisha over the weekend because personally I was having, um, have been having a very visceral reaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court of the U.S. Very heavy. And I just, it didn't feel right that we record these intros. And normally when it's a week out, it's okay. But this just felt like something that we couldn't go, especially since it's our last episode of the season without commenting on. And we're doing this in the middle of the day, so there may be some distractions. I came to the basement to record. And my husband's like, why are you going downstairs? Because the kids aren't here right now. He's like, record up here. I'm quiet as a mouse. No, 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 we're not. The nine-year-old, my husband, same, same. So if you think that it's like going to get better. No. Maybe not. <laughs> but the overturning of Ruby Wade hit me hard and... I don't know. Like I went down to like the lunchroom and I was like, guys, and like, nobody wanted to talk to me about it. And I was feeling, I'm like, how am I the only one who's like feeling this in a major way? Um, I think, but I do think other people care. I really do. I think other people care, but I do think there is a misconception that it doesn't affect us here North of the border. But as I said before we started recording, like I've been kind of, because I have my opinion on what's going on in the U.S., but I'm more comfortable speaking to that. Right. That said, I saw a social media post, and not all of my information came from social media, but it was a breakdown of all of the anti-choice MPs across Canada. Oh, yeah, I shared that one. And I saw that my personal MP, yep. who is a liberal, is one of them, and that was pretty horrifying to me and I only am referencing this and I I shared it because they there were citations and it was seemed like a well-informed social media post it did but then I started doing some more research because as we talked about in our episode with Amanda you had mentioned it's not a case of whether abortion is legal or illegal and to take it even further it's just treated as another medical procedure there's no such thing as a legal or illegal procedure that you get in a hospital or a doctor's office or anything like that right it's not a guaranteed right yeah it's not a right but there's no legality to it because it's a medical procedure <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, it is like you see a lot of people who are saying abortion is healthcare, and it absolutely it in many ways it should be treated as healthcare because it is right and and we are treating it in that way but it's scary in the sense that it's not really protected and when and because i do think things politically here are impacted by what goes on Oh, absolutely. Because it's been politicized as a legal or illegal thing that can have ripple effects here. Mm -hmm. So that's scary. Number one. Number two, I started diving into how accessible abortion is in Canada and specifically here in Ontario, because that's where we live. But what I felt was really interesting is that, yes, you can get an abortion here. It's not actually very accessible. Like I did Google and find a clinic very easily when we were speaking with Amanda, but there's only 11 clinics in Ontario that provide abortions and nine of them are here in Toronto and the other two are in Ottawa and London. Mm -hmm. So there are women who have to travel as far as now women are being forced to in the U.S., 
that are have to travel as far if this is a procedure that they need, which is kind of crazy. And it's again, it's this thing where where it's like, oh, this doesn't affect us. We're in Canada. And it's like, it's still technically a women's health issue here, just not in the same way. Oh, I mean, yeah, I know somebody who like in my early twenties, let's say needed to have an abortion and had to arrange to have somebody, you know, take her there Mm -hmm. as you would any medical medical procedure. And I think she wasn't allowed to drive herself home. I think that was part of it. Yeah. You can't drive yourself. And we don't live downtown, but it was downtown. So she had to have somebody drive her downtown and she had paid that person for gas. And then that person actually ended up getting a parking ticket. And so she had to pay that person's parking ticket and was extremely broke and was not going to ask her parents for help. As is awesome. And these are issues that we hear about in the US. And it's not as simple as just going to a grocery store, right? Like it is still a medical procedure. And not having it accessible in every town. Like, let's say you live in a small town. Well, now you have to figure out how you're going to get there and how you're going to pay somebody to to take you there so you can drive home. Like, these are definitely issues that women are facing. One of the things that I found myself struggling with this weekend, and I don't know if you felt this, but it was also Pride weekend, which is a huge thing here in Toronto. And I was really feeling this pull of we're celebrating gay rights at the same time that we're mourning the loss of women's rights in the U.S. Yeah. And I felt very torn between those things, between like, oh, hey, isn't this so great? We have gay rights and my sister can marry her girlfriend. Yes. Which is amazing. That is very real for me and my family. Yeah. At the same time, we're seeing women's rights being taken away. So how are we celebrating the rights of one group while we're mourning the loss of the rights of other groups? And like, hey, look how far we've come, but actually we're reversing history. Yeah. I I really struggled with the juxtaposition of those two things. And like we talk often on the show, like how you can be grateful and grieving at the same time. Yeah. Or, you know, that idea of being happy and sad and... I was struggling with that this weekend. Well, in practice, it can be really hard. And especially those are two things that you're not even just like struggling with internally. Like every time you open your Instagram, you were seeing the juxtaposition of those two things because I was. Absolutely. You know, celebrations. Yeah. But hey, we can't get an abortion anymore. On the other, like, yeah, it was tough. And like, I agree with, you know, we wanted to re-record this intro today because something major has happened. And I would say that we're a feminist podcast. Yeah. And this is a major feminist issue. It really is. And I think what's really frustrating to me, I'm sure you saw like one of the things that was going around. It's like, if you don't agree with abortion, don't have one. I guess it's this idea. And I struggled with it when we were deep in pandemic and vaccination conversations, this idea of legislating human bodies. But it's not even just human bodies as it relates to this issue. It's specifically women's bodies and what they are allowed to do with them. And that to me, why whatever their beliefs are, that they can determine what types of healthcare I could access. I just, it's unfathomable to me. It's that idea of somebody else making that decision because maybe that's not my religious belief. 
it's not necessarily the religious belief of every person. It, it's not necessarily the belief of all religions. No. So that one religious group can be making this, this decision for everybody is kind of scary. And I'm was friends with somebody. I'm friends with somebody. I don't even know how to explain that right now, who I've known for a very long time. And she was posting a lot of pro-life stuff and how she could not stop crying because how happy she is about all these unborn babies who are going to be saved. And that precipitated, you know what? I'm not even going to say a bit of a discussion between us because I think my message to her was simply, I am removing you from my friends list. And I want you to know that the reason I'm doing that is because of your stance on abortion. Full stop. We are no longer friends. And there's been lots of conversation among mutual friends that we have. And it's not that I hate this person. And part of her opinion, because there was like this whole other message that happened, was that this is like just a difference of opinions and that this shouldn't impact relationships. But it's so much more than just an opinion It's not like what you think about a certain restaurant. Right. Because I'm not going to end a relationship over you like this restaurant and I don't. Right. It's so much more about fundamental beliefs. And while I like to welcome people who have differing beliefs into my life, I just felt like I had to draw the line there. And it's, it goes along with also comments that I've ignored over the years around homosexuality. And it just goes so much deeper than just this one thing about abortion, Mm -hmm. but it just feels so raw to me. I feel passionately enough about it that I don't want to see the pro-life stuff in my feed. And if that's the stuff that you're posting, then I'm going to remove that from my feed because at the end of the day, I get to choose what, what pops up. You get to choose whether or not you listen to this podcast. I get to choose whether or not I want pro-life stuff showing up in my feed. And I don't. I hear what you're saying. And it's this line that we have to dance. I messaged a friend and over the last, I don't know, six to nine months, it's been clear that our views have been fundamentally different on a lot of things. And they posted something kind of cryptically like about this and how it is you know now it's just bringing this in to be more of a conversation it doesn't need to be the end of the world and I I made a point to message and was like it's clear that we have very different beliefs Mm -hmm. but how is this making this just simply adding this to the conversation if there's what is it 13 states that had trigger laws that immediately made it illegal there was a a news coverage of a clinic in houston where they literally had 20 people lined up for procedures and they had to send them all home on friday so like that to me that doesn't feel like it's the conversation and so in an effort to kind of try to understand where other people are coming from but i didn't really get a response and it was really upsetting because i was genuine I want to have the conversations Mm -hmm. that said I don't think I probably would have done the same thing as you did like somebody posting about all the babies being saved it's like okay what about the weight and the emotional toll bearing a a child 
takes on you. And I we talked about it with Amanda. The majority of women who have abortions already have a child. And in Amanda's case, it was a lifestyle choice. It was kind of a financial choice. Like there are all of these things that go into it. No yeah. human with a uterus makes that takes that decision lightly. We're not just using it as a form of birth control and it's been politicized to be that. Yes. And this is one of the things that upsets me so much because I do not know a single woman who's had an abortion that did not put a lot of thought into that decision. These are not decisions that women are are making lightly. And yet somebody is saying, actually, you don't have the right to make that choice for yourself. I know you've put a lot of thought into the decision, but your thinking doesn't matter. It feels very degrading to women that women aren't capable of putting thought into making a decision and then following those steps through without the input of like, let's face it, white men. Oh, those white men. It is. It is. And that's primarily who made this choice, right? It is. It is the people who made this choice. And it's people who we expected to make this choice. And I'm going to be impulsive here and I'm going to go out on a limb because I don't feel comfortable having this conversation without saying this. And I haven't said this publicly and I shared it on our Patreon, but I had an abortion in my 20s mm. and... I did not take it lightly. It was not easy. It is not something I am proud of, but it is something that I am comfortable with my decision and comfortable for having done because that's what I had to do at that time. Mm -hmm. And if you want to hear more about it, you can subscribe to our Patreon. I guess I'm sharing that because it's not okay that women are scared to share about it in what should be a safe space. This is this for me, this is a safe space and and my parents might hear it. And if they do, I'm sorry. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I am okay. (laughs) You know, but so many more people than you think probably have had one. And it's not a decision that I don't I can't imagine any woman that would say they took it lightly. And so many people are like, well, they can just put the baby up for adoption. But there's a lot of risk in being pregnant and you can go back and you can listen to Kaylee's birth trauma story. Mm -hmm. You can go back and you can listen to Amanda's story of a secret pregnancy where she planned to put a baby up for adoption and changed her mind. There are very real consequences to carrying a baby to full term that maybe a woman doesn't want to take, right? Being pregnant is, is dangerous that giving birth in, anywhere it's dangerous there are real risks to your to your health and to your life and maybe someone doesn't want to take that risk to force somebody to carry a baby to term because maybe someone might adopt that baby but what if it's a black baby i'm just putting that out there Mm -hmm. does someone want to adopt the black baby right maybe not or maybe then you feel a connection you've grown this baby you don't want to put it up for adoption anymore well, yeah, we're, worked it. we're not even talking about the emotional and physical toll that that just doing that has. Forget the, the chance for complications and all of that. The emotional toll of being pregnant and carrying a baby to term and giving birth to it. It's come up more than once on here that having a child changes you fundamentally. Whether you choose to raise that child or not, that day when that baby comes out of you, you have changed. And socially, that is not really spoken about. It's not really accepted. And as women, we're forced to sit here and figure it out as we go along, unless we are able to find safe spaces to discuss it. And so all of that goes into 
the choice to maintain a pregnancy. It's so complicated. And, and as I've said, it just upsets me that we're saying that women aren't allowed to make that decision because every woman's situation is, is so unique Mm -hmm. and you don't know why someone may be choosing to have an abortion or not. And to just be like, yeah, you know what? You're not allowed to like make that choice for yourself. We don't really trust your decision-making and the only right decision is the decision that would be made by my religion. It's just mind blowing. Or even if it's not religion, like my belief system trumps whatever you think is best for your body is, is the, the crux of it. My belief system and of yes. this greater group matters more than how you choose to care for your own human body. Exactly. Um, so hopefully we didn't lose anyone with this, but it just felt like something that we had to speak on, especially since we're going on yeah. break for the summer. It's important. We are a podcast focused on women and female identifying yeah. people and humans with uteruses and this affects us. And our episode is a little bit more uplifting. It's with Nina Purewall. Yeah. And Nina is, is fantastic. And she is not talking to us about abortion. No. Um, but you can go back and listen to last week's episode if you want to hear about abortion. But Nina is going to talk to us about the murder-suicide of her father and brother. Which Did again sounds it? very heavy, but I just cut the episode and it's not a heavy episode. So you, I think, will leave it in a better place than maybe we were leaving you right now with the frustration that we're sitting with. Listen to the episode. Follow us this summer on social media. Get on our email list. You can join it. We've got big plans. We've got big plans, like in-person events, folks. Uh, I've been sending a lot of emails trying to get things set up. And it's going to be connection and community and all of the things that we really want this podcast to do for everyone, including us. Hi, I'm Jen. Welcome back to the Now What Pod. And I'm Tisha. Thank you so much for joining us again. Today, we are going to be talking with Nina Purewall, who is a co-author of an international best-selling book, which is called Let That Shit Go. And she's also partnered with a kids company about as a podcast host and a meditation mentor. And she also does workshops on mindfulness and meditation in the corporate sector. And we are so glad that she has joined us today to talk about what led her to all of that. So welcome, Nina. Welcome. Thank you, Tisha and Jen, for having me. I'm so honored to be here, and I'm really looking forward to chatting today. You have quite a resume. (laughs) Thank you. That's all after 15 years of corporate work. <laughs> that's that's even more impressive then. So the a kid's book about podcasts. So those are like like a kid's book about racism, a kid's book about. That's yes. super cool. I love that series of books. Yes. And there's talk of doing a kid's book about meditation, which I might be authoring, totally which is really do. exciting. Yeah. But yeah, they have got amazing podcasts as well. So I'm one of the podcast hosts for It's Okay to Ask, where kids ask questions and kids answer them. And they're amazing questions these kids come up with. Like, what do you do if you have a friend who is sometimes mean to you? Or what do you do if you don't feel like doing your homework? And it's just amazing to see how brilliant kids are. And I think adults could learn from some of the things they say, but it's been listened to in 78 countries. And it has been just amazing to represent kids because I think it's important to let them know that asking questions is okay. Absolutely. Tell me the name of the podcast again. It's okay to ask. 
Okay. Appropriate for nine-year-old girls. Absolutely. My daughter okay. is almost eight and she's actually in a few episodes, but that is like the bang on age for the podcast. I'm going to make my daughter listen to it. I feel like yeah, my son would like it. And I was going to offer up my son if any kids call in with or have questions about grief or loss because my kids okay. are very well versed in that and are getting amazing, starting to get very good at speaking about it. Oh, that's so great. That's wonderful. I, you know, anyone can send in questions. Mm -hmm. So kids can send in questions or if you want to record an answer, you could be featured on the podcast. Yeah. But that's a great topic to have kids well-versed in. I know the company has books on a kid's book about grief, a kid's book about suicide, a kid's book about death. Just amazing topics that are sometimes tough to navigate as adults mm -hmm. with kids. Adults need help with those things. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons behind why we wanted to have this podcast was just that people have no idea, even as adults, how to talk about these things mm -hmm. and how to support other people when they do talk about it. And that contributes to people almost being silenced. Yeah. Because people just don't know how to respond. And then no one's modeling how to talk about the hard stuff. Yes. And so it's kind of cyclical, right? Absolutely. And that's why I think it's so important to be vulnerable and to share our stories and to let go of the shame around grief mm -hmm. or trauma, get the support you need. You know, I went through a lot of loss as a teenager and just suppressed and repressed because it was the 90s and nobody really talked about mental health and nobody really got help unless you saw a professional psychologist, which I did. So it isn't until recently and especially post pandemic that people are realizing the importance of bringing mental health to surface and especially for youth. Depression and anxiety is on the rise and suicide rates have doubled for youth in Canada in the last year. So it's so important to create a safe space for kids mm -hmm. and adults to talk about grief and loss. It's really interesting because I just came off a meeting. I was presenting to the board of directors for the Season Center for Grieving Children. And they're based in Barrie, but I leaned on them so heavily. So I lost my dad and brother when I was 16. And I'm happy to, to talk about that and get into it. But my mom had me see child psychologists and psychiatrists, and it didn't feel natural. It felt very formal. I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of it. I didn't like going to the appointments. And then my guidance counselor handed me a pamphlet for the Season Center for Grieving Children. And it was the first time I went in for my first meet that I felt understood, that I felt heard, that I felt safe because, you know, this happened in high school and it was a very traumatic, very, you know, got the news attention and there was caution tape around my house and it was this whole thing. And so I felt like it was written on my forehead walking down the halls of high school. I mean, not that mm -hmm. anyone was mean about it, but it was like, oh, that's the girl. And so I was finally in a place where I felt safe and that I wasn't the only one. So I think for kids to talk, not just openly about it, but to other kids yeah. who have also experienced the loss of a sibling or a parent, just that connection is so important. And it just takes away so much of the isolation and loneliness yeah. around loss. Yeah, we know from your intro that you're really into mindfulness and meditation and you put a lot of 
focus on that, but also you kind of mentioned that in your childhood, there was some trauma that really precipitated that. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what led you to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. So my parents had a really strained marriage. My mom was very subservient to my dad. He was physically abusive early in their marriage and then verbally and mentally abusive, very controlling, very manipulative. And so she had me and then she had my brother and she kind of said, if this behavior continues when my son turns 10, I'm leaving the marriage, which in the 90s was very taboo, especially for people in Indian culture, women would just not leave marriages, no matter how strained it got. So my brother turned 10 and she served my dad with divorce papers. And six months later, we came home from an appointment and our house was on fire. My dad took his own life, committed suicide, and he took my brother's life as well. So he murdered my brother in a very traumatic way. And it was tough. And the detectives on the case actually told me that I'm lucky to be alive because his plan was to take both of us and leave my mom with nothing. So I'm, I'm every day just grateful to be here because I don't know if that was in the cards for me initially. And it's, it's crazy because it was just by chance. My mom had a late night meeting and that was the day. It was all premeditated that he was going to do it and her meeting got canceled. So she got me out of the house. So that's basically what started my journey to mindfulness, meditation, studying ancient wisdom. I mean, I did all the the psychologists, psychiatrists and support groups, but my mom and I really got into studying ancient wisdom and it's really what helped ground me, give me a sense of, of freedom, give me some space. And so it's always been a part of me. Even throughout my career, I was, you know, an avid meditator. It had my corporate, but there were kind of like parallel paths. So now they're intertwined because now I take my mindfulness and meditation practice and I bring it into companies. But that's basically what started it. It's that very tragic event 25 years ago, the murder suicide of my dad and brother. I'm thinking back to how you were saying everybody knew what happened when you went to school and not that anyone was rude, but yeah, I certainly can imagine that teenagers were probably looking, didn't probably know how to say, I'm sorry for your loss. How are yeah. you doing? No, <laughs> like check that. in with you. I mean, or to even know how to hold space for you if you wanted to talk about that. Most no. adults don't know how to do that though. So yeah. like to expect a teenager, right? I think it's getting better, but how much? Again, it's why we're doing this, right? So that people can better show up in those mm -hmm. times for people. Mm -hmm. I really resonate with it being really public because how my husband died ended up becoming very public and I didn't like going anywhere because I felt like you said, like it was just on me as like, you know, widow and the looks that are meant to be caring but just make me feel cringy yeah and <laughs> or a being, microscope like yeah, shamed or yeah. you know they're just observing you and like you're this judging. foreign body and it just it was really uncomfortable yeah and I felt really guilty because a lot of my brother's friends were I mean they were 10 yeah and to hear you know some of them became terrified of their dads some of them had to go through some crazy therapy. Actually, his best friend, Matthew, now works for CAMH and has done suicide prevention. I mean, that's the impact, you know, it had. So I, mm -hmm. I would feel really guilty that it was like my dad caused all this ripple effect and pain. But yeah, it's, it's hard to know 
what to say, but I think, you know, Tisha, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head of like holding space. It's holding space and people don't know. I actually just posted about that like two days ago of how to hold space and just say, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel angry because sometimes the toxic positivity too is thrown your way. Like it's going to be fine. Stay strong. You know, I never tell people now when they lose people, oh, just stay strong or, you know, during the funeral or it's like, no, it's, it's okay to be sad. And I feel like that's not used enough. So I think holding space and just letting people know that you're there. I, I see you. I feel you. I might not be able to understand every intricacy of what you're going through, but whatever you need, even if it's to vent, I'm here. Well, yeah. What do you say? That's the thing. You can't make it better. There's nothing you can say to make it better. Yeah. So the listening and the being present. And sometimes just sitting next to someone, just like sitting there with somebody and being like, this is shitty. This is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I'm thinking of you and if you need anything, I'm here. Something as as simple as that on a death anniversary or on a birthday. I mean, it Mm -hmm. just, it's so meaningful. Not just the time of death, but I I find anniversaries are really triggering. Birthdays are really triggering. Mm -hmm. Events are really triggering because you always are having that wish that they're around. Mm-hmm. That idea that those feelings don't go away. They might lessen and come around less frequently, but yeah. there are still going to be those moments where you have those resurgent feelings. And I think, again, we live in this culture where it's like, you should see a therapist because I can't handle this. Yeah. Right? I mean, basically, that's what it is. Like, yeah. I don't know what to say to you. So a professional must yeah. when really most professionals I think we've. We've talked so many times about like that, you know, you say something to someone and they're like, have have you thought about talking to somebody about this? And you're like, I'm talking to you right now. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, referring someone to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, oh, just let me know if there's anything I can do. But it's like a lot of times, depending on what is going on, you don't know what it is that you need. Really, people just need practical help practical support in my experience anyway like oh just you're so strong you'll be okay and it's like Like, no no No, (laughs) don't tell me to be strong I can't be strong anymore there's a place and time for that you know yeah there's a place and time for that when maybe you see that person experiencing that strength then you can say I'm so proud of you you're so strong you don't always have to be but look at how far you've come you know there's a way to kind of use that and with therapists too this might be obvious, but one thing I kind of discovered in the last two years is like find a therapist that's specific to your type of loss or your type of need. Like if you have chronic health issues and you, you know, find a therapist for that. If you have gone through your suicide loss survivor, find a therapist if it's trauma, because there are now websites where you can find the specialty that the, the therapist is known for. And it just makes the help that much more relevant if a therapist and sometimes the therapist has actually gone through it themselves and that makes it I find really powerful because they inherently understand you know what you're going through yeah and I do think a lot of people enter you know therapy or social work like they as 
careers because because of their own experiences, right? Definitely. And I was just thinking about your mom in yeah. all of this because that would have been a lot for her too. Obviously, you can't tell us about what was going on exactly with your mother, but it sounds like she was trying to get you some help and I'm doing air quotes, but it sounds like she was trying to see that you were getting support. Definitely. She was very open to navigating conversations and she was my best friend. She was great at trying to support, like talk to me herself, Mm -hmm. get other people to talk to me, get me to the season center. So I have peer to peer support, you know, make sure that I was you know, seeing the guidance counselor when I needed, not judging me when I went from like a straight A student to like barely passing classes. So she was incredible. And she was also very into ancient wisdom as well. And there was this kind of dichotomy going on of like, I mean, now that I'm a mother, I can't imagine how she lost a child and survived through that. But she also had the freedom of not having my dad around after a 22 year abusive marriage and so she went from being right under his thumb she couldn't go to the mall herself she was she had a great career she wasn't allowed to drop he wouldn't let her do anything he like bugged her phone calls everything and then she just flipped and she like you know was like rappelling down waterfalls in costa rica and like ATVing in the mountains in jasper and like going off to thailand and just like living like going on pilgrimages and living this incredible life obviously with my brother you know at the core of her heart but she did an amazing job of helping me, you know, trying to navigate everything. And she really was my best friend. I lost her when I was 33. I was pregnant and I lost her to ALS to Lou Gehrig's. And that was, oh my God, it was so heartbreaking because she was my last family member and literally my best friend. So yeah, that was tough too, but she was an incredible woman. It sounds like it. And we've recorded many episodes and we've heard from lots of people about their trauma. And quite often we hear about people whose families just were not open to talking about it afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like my brother died and we just never spoke about it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or that, that happens. Uh, yeah, especially in that time that she was so just aware and conscientious, even through her own grief. Although I guess there's a piece of me that obviously our stories are different, but there was this piece of me that was like, I'll be okay as long as they're okay. I need them to be yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. And I could right. see that being something to help keep her going. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely. We're definitely. certainly much more aware, I think, of mental health now, but yeah. this happened in the 90s. Yeah. This happened I mean, which was in the 90s. Her awareness is amazing. Yeah, so it makes me think your mother yeah. was pretty progressive. <laughs> she was. She was very worldly. My grandfather was in the UN, so she lived in all these countries growing up. She had a great career and in IT strategy and all that stuff. So she was very self-aware, very aware of her emotions. But I'd say of our family friend circle, no one talked about it. You just went to weddings and life went on and, you know, it was really sad. Some Indian women stopped talking to her because she lost my dad. You know, my dad's mom blamed her for everything. Like it's just, you know, most people did not address it and did not talk about it in the nineties. And I look back now and I'm like, I wish someone told me I went through trauma 
no one looked at me and was like, you just went through severe trial. Like the pressure I put on myself then to go to university, you know, I got my business degree, like two years later, I got into Laurier and I remember being in lecture and leaving lecture and being like, I have no idea what, what the just happened. I can't believe I got my degree. And I actually did that fireside chat with a mental health prof now at Laurier last year. So this came full circle and she looked at me and this made me so emotional, but she said, the fact that you got out of bed mm-hmm. and went to lecture is a miracle in itself, you know, and That's no funny. one was there to tell you these things that, you know, the fact that you're for your kids, Jen, it's like the fact that you're going to school, you're facing each day. I mean, good on you, you know, and yeah. it was like, it was just kind of expected then I feel now parents are much more aware of mental health challenges their kids go through but to check in with your kid see how they're Mm -hmm. doing you know I I'm adamant with my daughter about I want you to come home every day and tell me like if something upset you and let's talk about it because you know if you don't then as they get older they're not going to lean on you for that support they're going to get used to internalizing it and then suppression and that leads to a whole slew of other things yeah I definitely come from a family where I never really felt like I could talk to my mom about like problems that I was having at school or relationships or like definitely not sex. Like definitely not. (laughs) I think I am the way with my kids partially because of what we went through, but even prior to Warren dying, I was always really transparent with my kids about my feelings. Like I'm having Mm -hmm. a really hard day and what you're doing by not listening to me. And they were little, but it was still like, I was trying to rationalize with them. Like you keep this up. I'm going to explode. I can't do this right now. I'm having a bad day. Mm -hmm. And my mom and Warren, and they would always be like, why do you need to tell them that? Because sometimes I'm an asshole and it's not their fault. And I don't want them to think it's their fault that I'm behaving this way, (laughs) you know, like that I lose my temper. I I always thought, and I don't know if it's just because I was the oldest, but like, I always thought everything was my fault. Kind of like how you felt this guilt about the ripple effect of something that you literally had nothing to do with you. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, kids, I mean, especially the younger ones, they have a hard time sometimes processing their emotion or even knowing when they're upset. So we actually have a little calming center in the corner, which we set up as a pandemic happened. And it's got like whatever your kids find comfort in. So I have like mindfulness flashcards, yoga flashcards. I have essential oils. I have crystals, you know, little sprays. But one day we spent like all this time drawing all the emojis. And so we have a box of cutout emojis. So sometimes when I can't express, yeah, yeah, it's like, what are you feeling right now? And she'll be like angry face and hungry or, you know, whatever it is. And so just having as many avenues as you can Mm -hmm. to make them feel safe and comfortable and giving them the tools to be able to express because, you know, a lot of the frustration comes from, they don't have the words. They might know happy, sad, but they don't have the words to know what they're feeling. So trying to be their voice and their advocate can be empowering for them. It was recommended to me, uh, 
once in one of my support groups that you can get these posters of all kinds of emotion faces emojis or whatever and like put it with on dry erase or like cover it so you can use a dry erase marker and you when you walk in the door you circle what you are and then there's another thing that you can move if you want alone time or snuggles and if you want alone time mm-hmm. you go up to your room and work it out and and if you want snuggles you'll get them no questions asked i haven't done that yet but i really like that idea i think it's a good idea and it's a good practice i think for all people right because when you're out and about in the world there's all this stuff happening around you and to you and whatever that can affect how you feel when you come Mm -hmm. back into Mm -hmm. your home and out and about the sorry i don't mean to cut you off but like forget out and about it's like social media well, They're yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, you, as they get older, like I, I mean, heard, you know, bullying was a thing when, you know, it was used to be a nine to three thing when we were in school, but now it's like a 24 seven thing. Yeah. Kids online. It's petrifying. So <laughs> not even like what you bring out yeah. from the house in, it's like what you're seeing on your phone too. But also, it also reinforces this idea with the like, you know, alone time or snuggles, like you don't get to explode your emotions all over the people who are here to support you. Yeah. That's very um, powerful too. But yeah, and, and I, again, we haven't done that, but we definitely had a conversation tonight because one of my kids bumped his head getting into bed and he went after his brother for it. And I'm like, whoa, be mad you bumped your head. It had nothing to do with him. Like nothing. He doesn't deserve you to yell at him because you bumped your head. And he was like sulking. And I was like, right? And he was like, mm-hmm. fine. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that. I will take that. You knew. But I feel like to make that stuff instructive, at least for us, I need to own what I'm doing it too. Yeah. That's another thing that I found really helpful too, to make sure it's not always like, you're doing this or you're feeling... It's like, I tell her when I'm having a bad day, like like you said, or I tell her when, you know, oh, me and this friend gotten a big argument and I'm really upset about it and I'm trying to navigate it just so she knows like I'm human I'll cry in front of her and she's like oh are you missing grandma you know and I'll be like yes and so also showing her that because I think for some parents like they want to be strong or they want to be parent or they see the hierarchy or whatever I read this amazing book called the conscious parent and it's about just treating them as humans and actually as our children as people we probably learn the most from. And so I'm also vulnerable. And I apologize too, when I cross the line, you know, when I've gotten upset and I just like snap and I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I should not have yelled at you like that. This wasn't right what you did, but I I didn't handle it the best way. I didn't handle it well, you know? And so it just shows them that like, it's okay to be human and we're not perfect either. And I think it's important to get yourself as parents, like off the, the pedestal. So you miraculously managed to get yourself two university classes mm-hmm. <laughs> and, a and got a degree yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> and got a job in the corporate world. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think you referred your career in the corporate world and your mindfulness and meditation journey as being kind of parallel paths. Yeah. And that made so much sense to me because you don't necessarily associate the corporate world with meditation and mindfulness. No, 
now I do. <laughs> right. In the 2000s, I didn't. I mean, I was always that girl with like positive quotes around her office kind of thing. But yeah, not many people knew I would meditate and I was into ancient wisdom. It was just kind of always a part of me. And then in 2010, I hit this peak point of stress and I left my career. I was addicted to my Blackberry or Crackberry, as they called it, and <laughs> sold my house and went off to Northern California and lived in an ashram for a year. And that was an incredible year where I, you know, we had monks from all around the world come in and teach us. And it was like a very formal structured school. At the time it was 2011 when I came back and no one was still talking about mindfulness and meditation. So I'm like, okay, I, I wanna spread this knowledge, but I'm just gonna go back to corporate for now. Mm -hmm. And it was incredible how much all of those tips and skills and tools I learned in that year were applicable to corporate stress, just to any stress, not just corporate, but like personal stress, work stress, family stress. And then, you know, and then when my mom passed away, that's when I was like, time to live your truth. Like I lost my brother at 10. My dad was 44. My mom was 61. I'm like, you can go at any day, you know, like your life is tomorrow is not guaranteed. So are you doing what you love? And, you know, the answer for me was no, I, I like mm -hmm. what I'm doing, but I don't love. And that's when I, you know, I, I started, I started my company because I'm like, I'll give it a year, but I have to give this a shot. And now it's so incredible to see them intertwined. And I go into these offices and I, you know, will run a workshop and do a meditation for like, you know, 300 corporate executives and, and they love it. And, they, and, and it does help reduce stress. It does help with their happiness. But yeah, it was, an, it's been an interesting journey to go from like, you know, keeping those two kind of siloed and separate to migrating, mm -hmm. migrating them together. What precipitated you like going to live in a monastery and ashram? Like, <laughs> how did you just make that decision? It was just a gut feel. And I think that's one thing we don't do enough is listen. Because mm -hmm. we have all the answers inward. We have all the wisdom. But society puts all this pressure on us that you should be having a job. You have bills. You need to do this. And mind you, it was like, you know, pre-kids. It was before a lot of practical things that would have not enabled me to do it now. But it was just like a knowing. It really was a knowing. And it was like... I have to do this. I have to do this for myself. I have to do this to heal. Because also I experienced that at 16 and got into my mindfulness meditation and ancient wisdom. But I also suppressed a lot of my emotions. I kind of did the whole toxic positivity, a little bit of spiritual bypassing. Like, it's okay. I'm fine. And you know, it's, it's all good. And I didn't really address what was going on. So I was like, I need mm -hmm. to, to go there. So yeah, it was annoying. My mom actually signed up to go. And this is crazy. This is why you do things and you don't wait because she worked for Bank of Montreal. She had one more year to retire. She had to be 25 years at the bank. And so most people would be like, I'm just going to finish working and then get on with retirement. The course came up, the one-year course. And she's like, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go now. It's come up now. I'm going to go now. I'll come back and work one more year. Well, the summer we came back is when she started limping around and got diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's. And so I always think if she had been like just she one more year it. at the bank, yeah, it would have been over. Wouldn't have happened. No. 
And so it's just a reinforcement. I'm so glad that her last healthy year of life, I got to spend with her in the, the Redwoods, studying, you know, like the whole thing. And so it honestly was just a gut feeling and your gut always, it knows, but we prioritize the shoulds, right? What I should be doing, what media tells me, what social media tells me, what my family feels is right for me instead of, you know, doing what's truly right for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of societal expectations. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of we pressure have, out there. We have a section in the book called fuck the shoulds because there's shoulds that come. I should own a home. I should have kids. I should, you know, be working. I should be making this much money. And we get the shoulds from the media. We get it from social media. We get it from friends. We get it from our, you know, social circle, from parents, from siblings. And, you know, people are always like, well, how do you know what should you should follow? I'm like, the shoulds that are important to you. If it's important to you, if you've always wanted to have kids, go for it. If it's important for you to own a home, great. But if all your friends own a home and you don't give a crap and you want to rent for the rest of your life, go for it, you know, but we conform. The things that you want and the things that will like make your life what you want it to be won't be shoulds. Exactly. Exactly. They won't be shoulds. They'll be I want this, I need this. Yeah. That's where we, as society, we're all just like, it's like when you go on the subway in Toronto, right? And it's like nine o'clock in the morning and everyone's just like, (laughs) you know, yeah. And you're not that that's right or wrong, but it's like the visual of like, Mm -hmm. okay, society's going there. So I'm just going to go there. You know, I don't know why I went to business school. Like, why did I go to, you know, like, because that's went. the responsible like thing the, to do the thing to do right like and so I think that's another thing with kids is like you know encouraging them to be authentic and to own who they are and you know to allow them to hey if they want to be a drummer like great explain the practicalities of things too but like you know I think a lot of kids especially growing up in the 80s 90s you know were pressured into like you must it's like the path right high school post you know, post or high school, undergrad, postgrad, if you want, and then, you know, settle down, get married, have kids. It's like that whole path, right? And it's like, who says the we have straight to follow agenda that It's the straight we, agenda. Yeah. yeah. The straight agenda. The heterosexual that, agenda. That's what we've, it's been referred to on <laughs> <Right>? other episodes. <laughs> there you go. And it's like, who says who? Yeah. And so a lot of, you know, it's like a lot of undoing of of that unlearning and unshaming to find your truth and to follow it. If there was like one thing that you would hope people would take away from your story, is that it? If there's one thing I would want people to take away from my story, I think fundamentally it's you can find hope through adversity, through tragedy. Mm-hmm. You can go through tragedy and heal and find your path and be happy. Because I think so many people, when they go through loss or when they go through something traumatic, it's like you can't breathe. And it's like, how am I going to even survive mm-hmm. this? So I hope for me with my story, and this is like my greatest mission, is that through adversity, people find their their happiness and their purpose and live a full life despite what's happened yeah and finding that is different for everybody so it doesn't have to be that you know 
agenda that we were talking about. Oh. Um, maybe those aren't the things that actually make you happy. And I went through a very traumatic experience that led me to do a lot of self-reflection and just kind of go, oh, hey, I've been doing that agenda, but are these things actually bringing me happiness? Yeah. And some of them were, were no. Yeah. Like I was killing myself for work and I'm still in the same job, but I approach it very differently and I have much firmer boundaries and I'm much happier in my work even though it's the same career, like sometimes people go through these experiences and they think, oh, I have mm -hmm. to change career paths as you did. And I've heard of people doing that all the time, but you can also, like in my experience, it was more just about approaching the work differently in a different way. That's and almost incredible. remembering more about why I got into the work because I am a teacher. So I saw value in that right? Which is why Absolutely. I entered that career. That's but the then, first thing we talk about in the book is like, you don't have to drastically change your life or change your job or do this to be happy. No, you can but just I made, look at life through a different lens. Yeah. And I've made very different decisions about the way that I consume. Mm -hmm. Like the purchases that I make, the way that I look around at things around my house, or when I look at things in the store, like, this is actually adding value to my life. Is this really going to bring me happiness or is this just what I think I'm supposed to have right. because of marketing or society or whatever that may be? Right. Exactly. Right. And it's that when you asked earlier, you know, what pushed you to go to California? It was like, I didn't want to be, you know, I was 30 at the time and it's like, I didn't want to be 40 or 50 and have that same question of like, what are you doing with your life? Like, Mm -hmm. are you really happy you know because I was starting to ask myself those questions and you know I didn't want to get to the point where I was like retiring being like why didn't I you know and again it was just one little measly year like I came back to corporate and everyone the same things were going on going like, on yeah, yeah. you didn't like, miss anything changed yeah you know like and so it was just like a, another year on the corporate belt but for me, it was like this incredible. So I think when we think about taking those risks or making those changes, it's sometimes bigger in our own head. And maybe we can always default. I always thought if this doesn't work out, I'll come back, work back in corporate. Like if I try yeah. this business and it doesn't work out, then I'll go back to this or, but, and but a lot I think of people feel like guilty about leaving work, like that the work is can't survive without them. Well, oh, we, that's put, the worst we, one. we put yeah. so much value on work like think about like societally when you're in a group of people that's new what do you do for work is usually one of the first questions that you ask you yeah. know like that that is like is supposed to be what defines yes. you yeah it doesn't like have to be North American no and it shouldn't be and that's a very like North American capitalistic you know yeah. someone told me once like if you're in Toronto you know, people will ask you, what do you do? And, and people will answer with their jobs. And if you go out West, people will say, what do you do? And they're like, oh, I'm a skier. I'm like, a, you know, I, like they'll define themselves by their hobbies. I'm mm -hmm. a guitarist versus like their, you know, their job mm -hmm. or their income. And so I think, and that's a lot of my, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching as well. And it's getting people to take like work being the center of their life to mm -hmm. work just 
it's a piece of your pie. It's not everything. And it's yeah. probably when you are dying, not going to be the most important thing that you reflect on that, you know, you've got all these checks and balances. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's putting things in a perspective that it's just work. And, you know, when I left, I went from a corporate salary to make nothing like when I started literally. So, you know, my husband and I did have to talk about, you know, you have to talk about sacrifices and like, we're like, okay, fine. We both could be making this, but we're cool making this. Like if we can only go for dinner, like every other week, instead of like every week, then I'd rather do that and be happy. Right. Then give her, get burnt out and like, have all the nice you know the extravagant thing mm -hmm. so it's also about like you know being okay with not keeping up with the joneses with like like you said the lifestyle changes and being okay not having you knew this and knew that and mm -hmm. and and putting your happiness first because again why do you have all these things like are they really for you or are they for you know so doing a lot of introspection can be so incredibly empowering and just landing you know where you feel inherently happy where you don't give a F about anybody else, about society, about the norms, about the straight path. You're just yeah. doing you. Right. Yeah. I love that so much. You were reminding me, I'm going to say I was maybe 25, 26, and I had a new job. And my boss asked me, when you're not working, what do you do? Or what do you like to do? How do you spend your time? And that was like the first question he asked me because- he wanted to know me uh, as a yeah. person right. and I was like dumbstruck. I had, I didn't even know how to answer that because nobody had ever asked me anything even remotely like that. Love it. Never mind. Like I'm this 20 something year old girl and he's like this 50 something year old man and he's like interested in what I do outside of work it's like I don't I don't know I don't know I watch tv like I didn't yeah. know how to answer it I just he must have thought I was such an idiot but and I'm sure even now if I asked if I posed that same question to people they'd also maybe not know how to answer it living yeah, in Toronto or even other major cities I'm sure are the same because we've been taught to define ourselves and our value. It would be interesting work. to ask that question now, though, in this, like, can we say post-pandemic? Like, Yeah, I know. I know. It feels a little, like, like having lived in- Can we in say that these, yet? Having lived yeah. in these pandemic times where everybody was at home and everything, mm -hmm. like, I, I feel like it would be interesting to ask that question. Because, I mean, I'd like to think- it's forced people to reevaluate how yes. work fits into their life, but I don't know. There's been a lot of reevaluation since the pandemic because yeah. so much shit has surfaced for people. And they're because, you know, with all the isolation, it's like, I can't go with my friends. I can't go to sports events. I can't do this. I can't take my kids out. Like, you're literally stuck at home. There's only, only so much TV every, mm -hmm. everyone can watch. And then you get to a point where like shit's starting to surface that you might've been repressing or suppressing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's like, Ooh, am I really happy? Like we've seen a lot of relationships yep. break mm -hmm. up in the pandemic. Absolutely. We've seen a lot of people, yeah, leave their jobs to 
finally start their side hustle. I mean, there's been in a good way. And I think that is the silver lining of the pandemic is that people have had time to reflect and sometimes they don't know what to do with it, but you know, just bringing it to surface, there's a, there's a saying that we have in the book is like, you need to let that shit out before you let that shit go. Because you don't, if you're so busy suppressing it and being on autopilot all the time, you don't even know what you really want. You don't even know what really makes you happy. You're just going. And that's what I was doing in corporate. I was just going, I was just doing that path. I was even really mm-hmm. thinking until I went to yeah. California and I'm like, whoa, something yeah. doesn't feel right. And that's what this pandemic has done for a lot of people. Lot of people. It's like made them yeah. stop in their tracks. Right. It forced us to slow down. And yeah. a lot of people keep themselves busy so that they don't have to deal with their shit yes. and they don't have to face the reality of whatever it is, whatever their experiences have been that yeah. they don't want to deal with, or, you know, they don't want to have, they're so busy. They don't even realize how unhappy they are. And then all of a sudden, all of that was stripped away. All 100%. of those distractions were gone. Yes. And we, yeah. You're, you're and then all of a sudden people are like, oh, these feelings are bubbling things. to the surface. Yeah. And yeah. definitely it's probably one of the, one of the reasons that we did see a lot of mental health coming yeah. forward is that people who've been ignoring their mental health yeah. now had no choice, but no choice. They, it to was deal staring with it. them right in the face. Yeah. 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 yeah suddenly. And that, that was me. Like after my dad and brother died, it was like, yes, I had the spiritual path, but I had to be busy all the time. Like even blaring music in the car, always having social plans. Like I could not be alone. I couldn't Mm. be alone because it was too scary to go there. And so suddenly now in this pandemic, it's like people are forced to be alone with their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that can be scary if you've been avoiding them. If you've been yes. keeping yourself busy and then suddenly you're alone with your, that's why meditation can be tough for people sometimes. Cause suddenly it's like, Oh, this stuff is coming up that I didn't know was going on in my subconscious. Cause we're only aware of 1% of our thoughts, you know? So we just like shove, shove, shove. So it's really, it's can be scary at first, but then you move through it and it's like, it's empowering because again, you're letting the shit come to surface then you can let it go because otherwise it's just sitting in there and I could talk forever about the impact that that can have on your body. <laughs> That's a whole right. other topic. But yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Give us a Cole's notes. <laughs> Cole's notes. Sometimes I wonder if that's why my mom, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but why she was diagnosed with ALS because she, it was so painful for her to go there. So she just went right to like, I'm positive. I'm fine. Everything's great. Like literally this woman mm-hmm. was like sunshine. People were so magnetized to her because she was so positive and they couldn't wrap their heads around how she went through such a tragedy and she was so positive. But she rarely cried about my brother. She rarely, I don't know if she was being strong for me or what, but she just, it, and and I think it just, eventually it got caught up in her nerves, that all mm-hmm. the emotion that she never, like she never went to therapy. She never got help. Like even forget the event like 22 years mm-hmm. of an abusive marriage never yeah. got help I don't know if you've heard of Gabor Mate but he's the yeah mm-hmm. trauma specialist and so he's written a book when the body says no. says no yeah and yeah the third chapter is all about ALS and Lou Gehrig's and so that's another reason why I'm adamant about 
mental health, expressing your emotions, Mm -hmm. feel it to heal it, talk about it, get it out. Because again, you don't know how it's being stored because it doesn't go away. until you deal with it, it it manifests in some, some form. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a totally selfish question, but I am a mom of two daughters and I grew up with a mom that I did not feel like I could talk to. And I remember kind of watching, you know, friends or even have friends now who feel like they can talk to their mothers about anything. And I'm like, wow, like how, did that happen? Like, it always just amazes me because it's just not how I grew up. And I want to know selfishly because I do want to have that type of relationship with my own children. Like, what do you think your mom did that allows you to say like, she was my best friend? Yeah. I've been reflecting on that a lot because I want to pass that on to my daughter. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest things that she did was she actually never told me what to do. She guided me, (laughs) but she never told me, you're not allowed to hang out with that friend. She would say, I don't know about that friend. I don't know if they're the best influence on you and just kind of plant seeds. Mm But she never told me what to do. She never told me who to date. She never, she was always totally mm-hmm. supportive, but she would still tell me her opinion on things. And so it was almost like I had so much love and respect for her because I could tell her anything and she would never judge me. And she would never say, no, don't do that. That I, I never wanted, it was like, I never want to disappoint her, you know, but I was literally the only brown kid in high school that could stay out till 3 a.m. Like she literally let me, I think she was so traumatized probably by the loss of my brother. She's like, what else could go wrong? Just do whatever you want. She was so detached. Like other Indian parents were like waiting till 12 o'clock, you know, and she'd be fast asleep. Like I'd come home at like two or three, she'd be fast asleep. So she just like, she never put pressure on me to be anybody other than who I wanted to be, but she would guide me like, she would say like, yeah, you know, if you, you know, she would always say, for example, like always be, you know, financially independent because of what happened to her. Right. So luckily mm-hmm. for her, she wasn't dependent on my dad and she had a corporate job. And so she'd be like, you, you know, you, you might need to go to university to get the job you want or, you know, like, but at the same time, if I didn't go, she wouldn't be like, you're a failure or like, no, that's not okay. <laughs> like, right. So mm-hmm. I think it's like that fine line. I try to do that with my daughter too. And as you get older, you can give more and more of a, you know, the leash can get longer. You have to guide a little more when they're younger. But, you know, like I'll say, well, ultimately, like this is what I think, but ultimately it's your choice. They're your friends. Right. You know? So I think that's what just the, un- there was, you know what it is? It's unconditional love. Because mm-hmm. so many parents love conditionally especially in Indian culture, you get these grades or you get this, you do this, you become doctor, lawyer, you know, and for her, it was purely unconditional. If I made mistakes, she still loved me. If I did well, she still loved me. Like I just always felt her love and that was unwavering. So I think that is what cultivated this best friend, you know, relationship. Yeah. That was my, my own selfish yeah, I love question, that question. But I'm like, I love that question. How do we? Because I reflect on it a lot too. 
Yeah. Parenting is, parenting is hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's so yeah, it is. hard. It's not, I mean, it, it really, I didn't mean to do that. I don't <laughs> like I hit something anyway. It really surprised me. Oh, I mean, in the beginning, it's physically exhausting, but it really surprised me how emotionally exhausting mm-hmm. parent, like you have to take care of another human, like a whole human with their own set of emotions and their own personality. Mm-hmm. And make sure they grow into like a, a, a good human. Yes. Hopefully Absolutely. a decent human being. Yeah. And I thought like yeah. it gets easier, but I'm noticing, you know, with my daughter now, she's nine, she's going to be 10. There's so many other worries, right? Like Terrified. there's so many. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Terrified like helping her navigate media. all the social stuff. Yeah. And she's not even on social media yet, but. But yeah, just the friend stuff, right? Like we just went on vacation. I had a workshop in San Diego. So we just ended up turning into family vacation the whole time she was talking about you know these friends and what do I do and oh my goodness and I said Bianca this is just the beginning like it's gonna get a lot more intense as you get older I'm sorry to tell you but I hate to tell you but you know (laughs) the worst is yet to come basically girls can be mean and social media when everyone's hiding behind a screen like it's so ballsy I coach adults on not getting, you know, affected by seeing everyone's 2% highlight reel, right? And we have the wherewithal to know, at least we can step back and be like, okay, that's not real life. That's fake life. Like that person's not posting the blowups with their partner or not posting like the nights they cry themselves to sleep. They're posting the sexy vacation shots and this and that. But can you imagine navigating that as a child can you imagine in high school seeing like the person you had a crush on like with someone yeah. else in pictures and you know it's mm-hmm. just like it's a lot for their little brain mm-hmm. not not little and you know but right happy, or like going but online like young. And seeing yeah. the popular girls having fun oh. and like right or your friends the getting together filters. without you yeah hard yeah I had her have you seen the social dilemma yes it's an amazing I documentary to watch it. <laughs> I actually had my daughter watch parts of it with me. Cause I was like, this is what happens when you get obsessed. Cause there's the one story of the little girl in there. Right. Who like suddenly hates her ears and she hates her the way she looks. Cause everyone's, but everyone's posting filter shots. So no yeah. one is real yeah. on social mm-hmm. media. And so, you know, I tell, showed it to my daughter and I said, this is why we want to wait because it can really affect how you feel about yourself and you have to feel beautiful inside out but yeah, yeah it's a lot to navigate for them it's a lot to navigate for us so i can't imagine kids and that's where a lot of the mental health oh my gosh know. it's so scary right like the pressure yeah. on girls the pressure. Is, yeah yeah i try to follow a lot of body positivity accounts and mm-hmm. also accounts where they out filters because the filters are effing insane like literally on your face you can do like 50 different things oh, like yeah. i sat there with one of my girlfriends and like no makeup you looked really rough and get makeup on your eyebrows like elongate your neck higher your cheekbones lip full your lip like literally every part of your face had like 15 options you yeah. know and it's yeah. like what you're seeing like I, i'm trying to tell my daughter too like what you're seeing is not well, she's yeah. not on social media, but it's like, yeah, it's not real. 
and even, even what you see on Netflix, what you see on TV, it's not no, right. It's not real. What you see in it's print, not it's not real. Um, it's not real. I mean, yeah, not everybody no, has perfectly straight teeth. No. As no. an example. I think like, well, there, there have been some older kids at our school who have been really nasty to the boys and like my little guy like acts all tough and he's six and like will literally take on try to take on anyone or get in there and like play rough with anyone and some of them are really nasty to him and I mean I definitely yell at them because they're there without parents and I'm like well this is not happening but what we talk about is that oftentimes when people act meanly it says way more about them than it does about you Yes. And about their, and about their experience. That's what I tell my, my daughter as well, that it's like, sometimes the bullies and the mean kids are actually hurting the most. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. when someone's mean to her or says something, I said, maybe that's the way their parent talks to them. And so how awful is that? Like, yes, they said something mean to you, but maybe it's because their parent never showed them affection or how to love and maybe they're just really sad that you know maybe they have all these siblings and they never get attention and so they're crying for attention you know so I tried and this is this is the mode I went through with forgiving my dad is like empathy you know just Mm -hmm. how messed in the head like how much have you were you just struggling with your mental health to be to have done that Mm -hmm. to your own child Mm -hmm. right um, so it's always the bullies that are hurting the most, you know, yeah. so sometimes educating and, and then saying like, look at how much love you get in this house. Like, you know, not to never say that. And that's amazing. And that's a gift. Not all kids get this kind of love or, you know, some kids get ignored. And so also right. explaining that it's not her fault and she didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes it's the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, my kids are like, Really? Like their minds are blown that not everybody has, I don't know, parents that are nice. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, really? Yeah. It's, and we never really talked that much about your dad, but you kind of mentioned it there. Like, yes, at some point you would have had to sort of reconcile what happened and try to understand from his point of view. And yeah, men's mental health is, oh, in entity more yeah Yeah. i'm doing a lot of work really research on that right well and i have to imagine especially culturally too within the indian community like no they didn't want to go to doctors forget like acknowledge and it was like then if you had mental health stuff like you'd be literally thrown into like a institution there was no like oh you could get a therapist like now everyone like prides themselves like no i don't know like you had mental health problems you were labeled Mm -hmm. nobody you know and you were less than right Mm -hmm. you were less than and there's no way with his ego you weren't a real man caught in that hit no because real men don't cry real men don't show emotion real men Mm -hmm. tough it out control their their people their partners yeah. yeah yeah exactly so i'm doing a lot of research now on men and mental health also because a lot of my corporate clients like the men that hire me no they're women oh it's women they're who women. are hiring. They're okay. women who are hiring me. And it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, I'll do book signings and stuff after I do a corporate talk. And a lot of the executive men will be like, 
uh, can you dedicate the book to my wife? I think it's going to be a great book for her, but to my daughter, you know, and it's, it's never for them. Like they don't, you know, so I'm like, what's going on here? So I've actually been talking to a few people that are, you know, psychologists or run mental health circles for men. And it's like, what is this gap going on? And I've been able to crack a few nuts because I'm like, why is it always women that reach out to me that are like, I love your workshop for my team. Why is it really men there with what's going on? Yeah. Whereas men and men define themselves again, they, they define their, their happiness by, I mean, I'm so generalizing people who identify as men, you know, sometimes can define their happiness by like their title, their position, their income. I think it's especially true in, in corporate, in corporate jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And that's why that's my reference point. But with my dad, I was like, I had this aha moment where I was like, so angry. Like I couldn't even grieve my brother for the first two years because I was so angry at my dad. Like, why couldn't you just take your own life? And that anger continued. And I, I suddenly had this aha moment where it was like, this anger is not impacting him. He's dead and gone. It's impacting me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do I get rid of this anger? Because I'm the one getting, you know, doubly <laughs> victimized by it, right? Yeah. Instead of, and so that's when I went on my journey to forgive him. I'm like, I, the only way for me to move through this anger is to let it go. So, mm-hmm. hence this. Hence <laughs> <laughs> the book. Exactly. <laughs> let that Amazing. shit go. Let yes. that shit go. Which all of our listeners should go and buy. Thank you. For their husbands. <laughs> for their husbands. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And then they can read it after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone is on that straight path. No, I love that. Thank you so much. I really Thanks so much. Conversation. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.